You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In his important new book, Black Fundamentalists, Conservative Christianity and Racial Identity in the Segregation Era, Daniel Baer introduces us to the life and ministry of Lacey Kirk Williams. Born to two former slaves in 1871 and growing up in the deep south of Alabama and Texas, from an early age, Williams longed to be a pastor. Not only did he become the pastor of Chicago's massive Olivet Baptist Church, but Williams in 1922 was also elected to the presidency of the nation's largest black Baptist denomination, the National Baptist Convention. Bear explains how in 1925, in the aftermath of the Scopes trial, Williams used his position to make clear where he stood in the bitter and pressing fundamentalist modernist controversy. And where did the president of the National Baptist Convention stand? As Bear goes on to demonstrate, Williams stood, quote, firmly on the fundamentalist side of this great theological divide. Now, in his annual address to the convention in September of 1925, Williams, quote, expressly identified himself and urged his entire denomination to likewise identify with the fundamentalists. On grounds biblical, historical, and epistemological, this most influential of Black Baptist pastors proclaimed the superiority of the fundamentalist cause. To demonstrate biblical superiority, he invoked all five fundamentals in quick succession as examples of fundamentalism's praiseworthy devotion to scriptural teaching over against modernist infidelity. And here's an example or an excerpt from this sermon he delivered. He said, quote, fundamentalists accept the teachings of the scripture on the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus Christ, his vicarious sufferings, and his bodily resurrection, his ascension and second coming. The scriptures, Williams continued, are to them pregnant with convincing and heartwarming truths. The differentiation, I think, between the modernists and the fundamentalists has been very clearly and fairly drawn, and we should not hesitate to take and announce our position. I therefore declare unto you that I believe that we should take our stand with those who who believe in the full, sufficient authority of the scriptures in matters of religion. That was part of the sermon that Williams delivered in that September 1925 address. Now, Bear concludes from this. He says, ultimately then, Williams' endorsement of fundamentalism boiled down at its simplest to the central importance of maintaining a correct doctrine of Scripture. Compromise on the doctrine of Scripture would ultimately lead to the abandonment of all these fundamental teachings for Williams the choice was clear. The fact that Lacey Kirk Williams is relatively unknown in the story of American fundamentalism is warrant for the book Black Fundamentalists. And thankfully, 
we have the author with us today to discuss his work and its implications for better understanding a most significant time in American religious history. Well, Daniel Baer is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Texas A&M University, where he also earned his PhD. He has his MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Daniel will forgive you for that, and a BA in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Now, Dr. Baer's most recent book is the aforementioned Black Fundamentalists, Conservative Christianity and Racial Identity in the Segregation Era, and that's published with uh, New York University Press just last year, 2021. So Dr. Baer, with regrets from my co-host, Michael, who can't be with us today, welcome to Bead. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, Daniel, this has been a long time coming. You and I have been going back and forth in some email correspondence. I've been so eager to get you on this podcast because I love your book. So again, congratulations on it just came out last year. It probably still feels somewhat new to you. I mean, it's, it hasn't been that long. Yeah, it does. It's a, it's a real great feeling. You know, when you've had something like this uh, in your mind for so long, worked on it for so long, and then you finally have the actual physical artifact in your hand, it's, it's quite a gratifying experience. So I'm still a little bit on that uh, new publication high, I guess, right now. Well, as you should be, as you should be. And I tell you, it, it was, I'm sure, a labor of love. But what some people don't understand is the emphasis sometimes feels like it was on labor. It is a labor <laughs> to write a book like this. So It is. It's a labor, but it's one that I, uh, I'm, I'm very glad I was able to do. Well, it's a good segue, uh, Daniel, into uh, you know, the question I wanted to open with, with you. Uh, what brought you to write Black Fundamentalists, and, and what contribution do you see it making to the historiography on this you know, early 20th century American fundamentalism? Yeah, well... My interest in fundamentalism developed initially during my MDiv while I was studying American Christianity at Southwestern, partly because of my own just personal religious upbringing in an evangelical context and the fact that when I was uh, in college, I went through challenges to my faith and exploring things I hadn't really heard a lot about before, challenges to um the doctrine of scripture that I had grown up with and things like that, and, and having to really explore and examine those things. Uh, when I started reading about the fundamentalists in, uh, in seminary, it really caught my attention. I thought, wow, this is, this is very interesting, uh, because I've you know, had some experience going through uh, some of these same issues, addressing some of these same questions. And, uh, and so I, I decided I wanted to read and study more on this movement, and I didn't know exactly where it was going to take me, but as with most books and projects, you get there through reading a lot and asking questions as you're reading. And one of the questions that came up while I was reading all of these various books on fundamentalism, a lot of very fine works, uh, but one of the questions that kept coming up to me was, um, everything in here is, is very confined to uh, white communities. Uh, where are other sorts of people, where are uh, particularly given that this is happening in the early 20th century, uh, where are African Americans in this story? I, I don't know. And so I started looking to see if there were any answers to that question, and I couldn't find any books on the issue. And so uh, it turned out I just needed to write the book. And so that's kind of how I came to the topic itself. Now, as to the uh, the intervention into the historiography, the kind of contribution here, 
I see this as contributing because of the historiography of fundamentalism and African-American religion, they're both very robust uh, historiographies. There's been a lot written on both, but they really haven't intersected much at all. And so I see this as an attempt to, to remedy that shortcoming. So for instance, uh, L.K. Williams, Lacey Kirk Williams, the gentleman that uh, you were reading uh, about from part of my book in the introduction here, uh, he's certainly not an unknown figure in terms of African-American religious history, right? He's the pastor of uh, Olivet, and he's uh, a pretty major figure on the, the religious scene at that time. He's the president of the largest Black Baptist convention in America. So it's not as though Williams is an unknown figure, uh, but he really had not been considered in the context of fundamentalism. Yet, when you look at his uh, address in 1925 to the convention, as well as when you look at some of the newspaper articles in black uh, weekly newspapers about him, uh, he's labeled there as well as a fundamentalist. And so I, I found that quite intriguing. Uh, and so I, I had to start addressing the question, well, what do we make of these people that we run across in the historical record that start using the language of fundamentalism to describe themselves in the African-American community, right? They identify as fundamentalists. And as you can see in that excerpt from Williams's convention address, they, uh, they hold to many of these same fundamentalist theological positions. Uh, so why haven't they been considered or integrated into the literature? Why have these historiographies not intersected? Uh, and so that is really the purpose of the book and kind of the direction that led me there. And I think one of the things that that does is it helps to helps us recognize that fundamentalist Protestantism might actually have been a bit wider, had a little bit wider range of social and cultural expressions and commitments and ap applications than we sometimes assume. Uh, and so that's really where I see the book fitting in and hopefully making a significant contribution both in the studies of fundamentalism and in the studies of African-American religion and, and black church studies. Well, Daniel, I for one sure think you did. I, I mean, my my doctoral work was in early 20th century American fundamentalism, uh, mm -hmm. really radio, though, and, and theology in America was what I was focusing on, so radio preachers. Uh, but uh, the mark of a good book is when, when you learn. I learned a lot from reading uh, your book, and, and I've spent a lot of time in this era. So it just it, there's such value in it. And I want to come back. You offer some really profound reasons for why uh, the, the there hasn't been this this broader understanding of fundamentalism. I want to come back to those, but for our listeners, let's let's even before we go there. How are we defining fundamentalism? And so, if what what's the the kind of baseline, or or what are we using to say this person or this group is fundamentalist uh, in the early twentieth century? What would be the the yardstick, as it were? Well, there's. That's a bit of a sticky question, depending on what book you read. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the things that we'll, we'll come back to here in a minute, I'm sure, uh, when we get to some of the historiographical trends I talk about in the book. Um, so for, for my purposes, what you look at fundamentalism, and just at a very basic level, this is a, a reactionary movement that's coming about in the early 20th century that's pushing back against what they perceive to be theological liberalization, 
that is coming into uh, Christian churches, uh, a kind of liberalism or modernism, as it was sometimes called, that kind of sought to adapt Christianity to fit more neatly into the modern culture. Uh, and so fundamentalists react to this liberalizing tendency, and uh, they, they look at this modernism as basically compromising on the essential elements, the essential content of the historic Christian faith. And so that's, that's what the movement um, is sort of in a nutshell from a, a theological perspective. And so I look at fundamentalism as a centrally theological enterprise that requires a largely theological definition. That's not to say that it is only or exclusively theological. There's certainly a lot of cultural and social elements that come into play as well, as I get into in the book, but it is a, a centrally theological enterprise uh, because of those concerns. And so I define fundamentalism, and I, I try to do so in a way with a, a perspective that I call a, a historical theological perspective that gives equal weight or appropriate weight both to recognizing the significance of theology in and of itself uh, as a defining factor for fundamentalists and also the importance of historical context on theological developments. So I, I identify four things, four elements that I include in my exploration of fundamentalism. And I don't look at this as a an absolutely universal definitional uh, look at fundamentalism. I think it's a useful kind of definition uh, that, that certainly helps in identifying the kinds of fundamentalists I'm looking at. Uh, and so I look at four elements. Number one, uh, a supernaturalist and biblicist worldview. So a, uh, a worldview that includes an attitude of continuity with historic Christian tradition. So not adapting, not innovating theology, but continuity with traditionalism. That includes a supernaturalist view of the world and a biblicist view. Uh, number two, a personal commitment to the central doctrinal essentials of the movement, what are sometimes called the, the five fundamentals is just the shorthand uh, way that it's sometimes put. And those are the, the doctrinal elements that I really dive deep into, particularly in chapter two of the book. Um, and number three, I look at explicit criticism and condemnation of modernist theology as a significant and necessary element. You could uh, conceivably have the first two, the supernaturalist biblicist worldview and the the kind of conservative theology and still not be a fundamentalist. You might be a theological conservative, but to be a fundamentalist, you had to be actively uh, and uh, overtly expressly criticizing and condemning and repudiating modernism. And then number four, a willingness to utilize expressly fundamentalist terminology and language to define one's position. So those are the, the four things that I look at, the supernaturalist biblicist worldview, the commitment to the doctrinal elements, the uh, anti-modernist condemnations, and the willingness to utilize a terminology like fundamentalist, the fundamentals, and, and things like that in defining one's position. Which is why, you know, Lacey Kirk Williams made such a, a powerful example as you demonstrate this, because he, mm -hmm. he you could check off all four of those boxes with his yeah, ministry. Absolutely. Right? And so, yes, uh, absolutely. You can, uh, I mean, you can check off all four of those boxes just in that convention address. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that you read from there at the beginning, as well as in other elements of his ministry. So yeah, absolutely. And, and you're helpful early on too, Daniel, to mention that this, uh, series of 90 plus, I think, mm -hmm. uh, tracks as it were, even essays that, that ended up being compiled into this 12 volume. Well, it wasn't 
I mean, there were 12 volumes within it. Um, mm-hmm. Finally published, I guess, 1917, The Fundamentals. And so yes. our, our audience may know something about that, but that was a, uh, a very important, say, source book for who was a fundamentalist. Yeah, these were 90 articles that were produced by a couple of California oil millionaire brothers uh, who, who began uh, beginning in 1910 and through 1915 decided they wanted to publish these articles in defense of what they understood to be the fundamentals or the essentials of the Christian faith. And they put them out in a series of 12 pamphlets uh, and mailed copies to uh, ministers and uh Christian professors and folks like that all over the country. Uh, And so by 1915, these 90 articles that came to be known as the fundamentals were complete. And then in 1917, Biola published a four volume, published them all in a four volume set. And so I I kind of use that as a a place to go to compare the theological formulations we see among these black religious leaders that I'm talking about with their white counterparts and see are they making the same sorts of theological arguments? Are they drawing from the same biblical texts? And so that's what I use to kind of compare the, the theological side of the fundamentalist question between black and white fundamentalists in the book. And what's interesting, Daniel, you can see, you can read the table of contents from the fundamentals, and I happen to have it in front of me, mm-hmm. and you can just see what you're writing about. These essays are really in response to core or you know, key doctrines of the faith that the fundamentalists thought were under attack because of modernism. So in volume one, you'll see an essay on the virgin birth and the deity of Christ, things that they thought were contested and and were, in fact. Then it's volume three, where we get uh, first into the inspiration of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's interesting is you can look at, even in the volumes, as as I look at them, you can tell they were coming out at different times because there's strategic redundancy, right? You'll have a later yeah. volume that's bringing up inspiration again or talking about the yes, Bible. Yes, most certainly. Um, and even you know the relationship between science and the Bible and all these things were really mm-hmm. hot button issues in you know the nineteen well nineteen teens and then into the twenties. Yeah. And not that any of that's talked about today, right? This isn't relevant <laughs> at all to our time. Nobody cares yeah, about science and the Bible and. Yeah, if you look in that table of contents and you look through the articles, it's uh, it's pretty clear that the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture is kind of chief among the concerns because nearly a third of the articles, I think 29 out of the 90, it might be 30, uh, address in some way, shape or form the doctrine of inspiration or inerrancy or pushing back against higher criticism and things mm-hmm. like that. So it was definitely on the mind of the people then uh, as now. And Christology is right up there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, coming right out of the gates with, with a clear understanding of, and even an essay here on the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so mm-hmm. there's a Trinitarian concern there. And and again, you put it so well in context against this higher critical uh, encroachment uh, on the Bible. Uh, well, I, I, I do want to get into some of the more specifics of of your book, Daniel. And you, you mentioned your approach. I find this very compelling that you say without apology, I mean, with, you say, I'm, I'm invoking, uh, practicing a historical theological approach mm-hmm. in this book. And and you you give a hat tip to Albert Rabateau and his, his book, mm-hmm. Slave Religion, has been very influential to me. Uh, but you bring up him and talking about the warnings or this warning he gives about the dangers that exist when historians fail to take seriously the theological content 
of religious belief. And one of the things you do in the book, you take very seriously people's theological commitments. So why is this historical theological perspective so important in the study of fundamentalism you know, across color lines? Yeah, well, I think uh, taking a historical theological approach allows you to avoid reductionism on two different extremes. So on the one hand, it allows you to avoid sort of an ahistorical reductionism, which says, well, theology is completely divorced from any historical circumstance, and uh, and we don't need to pay attention to historical or cultural circumstances in, in terms of studying the church or studying the history of the church or, uh, or the, the development of theology. Um, so on the one hand, the historical theological approach accounts for the fact that there are historical elements at play here, and we all exist in a historical context. But on the other hand, there's also uh, the sort of equal and opposite tendency would be to look at religion as merely an expression of sort of baser or more foundational social or cultural or political or economic ideas that are sort of clothed in religion. But really, it's about these other things. And that's what Rabito is, is warning about in that particular, uh, that particular quote that I mentioned in the book. Uh, and so really what the historical theological approach does is, is it gives weight to both the theological side of things in understanding these people as theological actors who understand theology to be an important identifying mark and an important thing in and of itself. And also it gives uh, due... Uh, attention to the historical context in which they subsist. And in this case, particularly, my focus is on racial context uh, and the racial context in which some of these theological developments are are taking place. Uh, Because the reality of race as sort of this pervasive structuring element of American society during this period in American history is, I mean, it's utterly undeniable, right? We uh, We can't get away from that from segregation to um, various socially approved forms of racial violence at the time, like lynching, uh, to voter disenfranchisement. I mean, the, the, the reality of sort of racial uh, oppression and discrimination is, is a reality of history that we have to deal with. And so it's, it makes sense that racial considerations are also going to be influencing religious and ecclesiastical and theological developments as well. And so with this kind of historical theological approach, we can look at the black fundamentalists who I discuss in the book and see people whose theological formulations, in just purely in terms of their theological arguments on these doctrines, the divinity of Christ, the inspiration of scripture, are very much aligned with those of their white fundamentalist counterparts. And they took their theology very seriously as a, a, a meaningful enterprise in and of itself. But they also saw the need to apply their theology in such a way as to address the racial injustices that they saw and experienced in the world around them. And so this this approach really lets us kind of identify and uh, latch onto black voices in the historical record who identified as fundamentalists, who uh, expressed the theological ideas of fundamentalism. but whose voices have kind of been uh, overlooked or ignored in the historical record. I argue in part because their social applications look very different from the better known white fundamentalists 
You look, for example, at J. Frank Norris, maybe the best known of the, the fundamentalist leaders during this period, and he was unabashedly and unavowedly segregationist. Uh, and for him, segregationism was pretty much just as self-evidently true and good as the divinity of Christ or the inspiration of scripture. It, for him, it just sort of went hand in hand. And so I think that, that the, the, the idea that fundamentalism is identified with that perspective has been something in the historiography. And so when you're, you're looking at these black figures who offer different kinds of social engagement and social application, uh, well, we can see them through this historical theological lens and say, oh, wow, these people really are part of the fundamentalist movement. They're identifying as fundamentalists, but their social engagement in a lot of ways looks very different, has some very different assumptions and is operating from some very different premises than folks like J. Frank Norris, because these people were experiencing racial segregation, racial oppression, disenfranchisement, lynching within their communities and things like this. And that significantly impacts the way that they apply their faith. So what's amazing, Daniel, is you're suggesting, <laughs> more than suggesting, you're making a very compelling argument that you can have theological unity, theological agreement on first things, matters mm -hmm. of first importance, but dramatically different social outcomes or the working itself out of that same theology. And, yeah. and, and that's one of the, I think the great contribution you make this. You, you open my eyes to the breadth, the depth, uh, how big, if I could, there's a real academic word, right? How big <laughs> fundamentalism really was. It was bigger than I realized. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but you've said it already in in some ways, but let's, for our listeners, really make clear, you offer up two historiographical um, trends, you call them, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And, and you've alluded to it here. There's there's institutional, uh, a, mm -hmm. a trend that is institutional and one that's social. Maybe you could explain mm -hmm. that a little bit uh, in, in why fundamentalism, maybe prior to your book, has, has, has not crossed the color lines as it should. Yeah, well, there are, like I said earlier, probably as many different ways of defining fundamentalism as there are books on fundamentalism. Uh, but two of the trends in the fundamentalist historiography do combine, I think, to functionally exclude the possibility of African-American fundamentalists. And I think this is one reason that they've been left out of the historical narrative to this point. So those, those trends are, for one thing, the idea of fundamentalism as institutional, as an institutionalized movement. Um, and so I want to make clear that I'm, I'm not in my book repudiating these other ideas. I think that they are, they are helpful in certain contexts, but, um, but there are limits. And so I'm not offering a replacement necessarily, but, uh, a, uh, but a, another facet through which to view fundamentalism. So you're not throwing so, out Sandine. Um, you're not I'm not throwing out Sandine. I'm not <laughs> okay. throwing out Marsden. Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, but so there, the one tendency is to look at fundamentalism as an institutionalized movement. Look at it basically through the lens of the, the large scale institutions that fundamentalism birthed, that the fundamentalists, the fundamentalist leaders like J. Frank Norris or William Bell Riley uh, created and oversaw. Perhaps the, the, um, the institutional networks that they created, or groups like the World's Christian Fundamentals Association, 
uh, or the, the networks of Bible retreats and Bible schools and things like that, right? These institutional expressions. And there are ways that that is very, very helpful in, in, certain, uh, in certain respects. However, in order to shed light on African-American fundamentalists, the institutionalized view of fundamentalism isn't especially helpful because at this point in time, like I said, African-Americans are on the margins of, of society, at least relative to the white leaders who are, uh, who are the ones creating and heading up these institutional networks. And so if your definition of fundamentalism is primarily institutional, it's about these institutional networks, well, of course, there are no black fundamentalists because they're not part of J. Frank Norris's network. Uh, and, and so that's sort of just uh, definitionally true. So if you're looking at it from an institutionalized, uh, as an institutionalized movement, you're going to miss black fundamentalists in the historical record. Uh, the other tendency in the historiography is that of kind of defining fundamentalism on the basis of social political commitments and definitions. So this idea of fundamentalism as essentially engaged in these militant social cultural wars things like battles over uh, over school curricula and teaching evolution in public schools and things like that, right? And there are, again, uh, ways that that is very helpful. Uh, but at the same time, if you're defining fundamentalism on the basis of a relatively narrow and politically and culturally conservative set of um, political and social commitments at that point in time, that is probably going to have the effect of excluding African-American fundamentalists whose attention by force of historical necessity, among other things, may be directed more toward issues of racial necessity of the issues that are facing their community. Uh, things like funding for black schools, things like fighting against lynching uh, and uh things of that nature. And so their, their attention is going to be directed more toward those issues of racial progress and racial advancement. And that's not to say that they weren't concerned with things like evolution. They, they certainly were. You can see that in the first chapter of the book when I'm talking about various elements of fundamentalism you see in the black weekly newspapers. They certainly do talk about evolution, but it's not, their, uh, it's not the center of their existence, right? It's not the center of their, uh, of their functionality as fundamentalists. So if you're identifying and defining fundamentalism, if you're conceptualizing it as a movement that's tied to this narrow spectrum of culturally conservative political and social objectives, and as a movement that is primarily institutional, that's defined by these institutional structures, then African-Americans are going to not appear in that narrative. They can actually be kind of safely ignored because typically African-Americans were at this time far from the cultural centers of power. Uh, and they were, um, they were concerned with particular sets of issues that were facing their community in particular uh, on the basis of their, their um, marginalization due to their race during the era of Jim Crow. They're facing all of this kind of segregation and oppression in the Jim Crow era. Uh, and so if you take those two trends in the historiography, you can kind of see why maybe, not intentionally, but just because that's how things have worked out, the, the, um, the, the scholarship on fundamentalism has missed this significant strain of African-American fundamentalists who deserve our attention. 
Daniel, again, that's the great contribution. I think of your book, you're helping us see uh, fundamentalism as much more uh, varied and 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 bigger, as I said earlier, than than some of those other uh, approaches. By definition, don't allow us to see it that way, whether it's institutional mm-hmm. or social. Uh, what what also related to this? And you mentioned this. I'll let you talk about it, though. What does this say to have African American fundamentalists? Uh, what does this say about the monolithic understanding of the Black Church? in the 20th century hmm. and even before it, it says something to that too. Yeah. That well, historiography maybe. Yeah, certainly. I think, uh, I think certainly there's sometimes a tendency to kind of look at the black church quote unquote as sort of a, just a, a singular right. entity. Uh, and that's really, it's another thing that, that Rabito po- points out in his work and, and I've gained and learned a lot from, uh, I appreciated his work quite a bit uh, as he points out that there's actually a great deal of, uh, theological and social diversity within black church traditions. And this is just adding to that. And so you've got um, a strain of fundamentalism within some of these African-American denominations I talk about in the book that exists alongside, for example, social gospel perspectives that also subsist within some of those same denominational contexts. And and you've got more theologically conservative and more theologically liberal people in these um, these black denominations who are in different ways trying to utilize their religion and their theological convictions to try to push for various sorts of social change. Uh, and so it, it goes to show that there's, there's a, a, a great deal of sort of this multifaceted intellectual diversity within, uh, within, uh, black church traditions that uh, that I think th- this book hopefully helps to point out. I think it also goes to show uh, some interesting ways that uh, black fundamentalists are able to to uh, leverage or utilize or or apply their fundamentalist convictions toward ideas of social progress in ways that sometimes are assumed to be just the domain of the more theologically liberal kind of social gospel side of the equation. And yet you've got folks that I talk about in the book, a, a great many people in uh, in the black church tra- uh, traditions that I discuss who are using their doctrinal convictions about um, miraculous divine creation of the world as opposed to evolutionism uh, or the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And they're using these doctrines and applying these doctrines in ways that are intended to directly undermine Jim Crow and these kind of racial uh, hierarchies that exist in American society. Uh, And they see their fundamentalist convictions as containing these doctrines as containing within themselves the seeds of defeating Jim Crow. And so they look at their fundamentalist uh, doctrines and say, well, we don't need to adopt a social gospel. We don't need to uh, move in the theologically liberal direction because we have the solution to various social ills that we see facing our community right here in the, the divinely inspired text of scripture and in the doctrines of the divinity of Christ and things of that nature. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, a fascinating uh, element of the, uh, of the black church tradition that, uh, that I don't think gets enough play, this kind of 
theologically conservative side of things that's applying these conservative theological convictions to uh, social ills that are facing the community. Daniel, you say it at the end of the book, toward the end of the book, and I love this, and I'm going to quote you here because it, it's, it's a capstone on what you just said. Uh, you say, quote, theological unity across racial lines was no guarantee that political and social uniformity would follow. And I, I think what we can say is, and it doesn't need to. Not mm. only does it not follow, it doesn't need to. And I think that's one of the great takeaways from from your book. And unfortunately, the clock is my enemy. I wish we could keep talking <laughs> all, all a lot longer about this, Daniel. But I want to tell our listeners again, the book is Black Fundamentalists. And it's by Daniel Baer. You need to get it. Uh, Daniel, what you've done here, this might be the best way to commend your work. You mentioned early on in the work that you have a driving question uh, that's that's you know part of this book, and it's what of all these African American fundamentalist voices? That's the driving question of your book. What what do I do with all these voices? Well, here's what you've done. If I can uh, compliment you this way, you've you've given them voice. That's what your book has given these marginalized voices that need to be heard a platform, and for that. Uh, I'm super grateful, and I think many others will be as well. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a real pleasure. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.